Have you ever felt something so strongly for another that you might declare that you'd do anything for their love? Of course, the average person probably would draw a reasonable and legal line at what that would be. But in the case of Christiana Edmonds, forever known as the chocolate cream killer of Brighton, that line did not exist, and she turned her obsession with a married man into a community nightmare. Welcome to As We Eat, where we explore the intersection of food, family, history, and culture. We think there's something magical that happens when people get together and share food. Conversations seem to happen a little more naturally. We talk about our commonalities and our differences. We share stories, memories, and recipes. And we'll use food to take a journey that explores our human experience. Share some fun facts and some that aren't so fun. Talk about food history and how food connects and defines us. So if you've ever eaten, prepared, or shared food, then this podcast probably has something for you. Hi, Leigh. Hey, Kim, how are you? I am on top of the world today. How are you? Wow, that's a, I like that response. I am on, I'm close to on top of the world too. I'm up in my loft, so that counts, right? <laughs> that definitely counts, I think. I, it might be the change in the air. You know how the seasons make us feel sprightly and special and there's a little bit of a, a buzz and a twitter in the air, so to speak. So I'm feeling pretty good. And I'm happy to be here talking to you about actually a very horrible, dreadful, true food crime case. Yeah, <laughs> I this is a very interesting case, very different from our first one. Mm. And I can't wait to hear what you have to tell us about Miss Christiana Edmonds. Oh, indeed. This one is a wild ride, folks. So I think it's pretty safe to say that the British Victorian era was marked by a deep obsession with, well, obsession and mm. stories of obsession. And caught in the crossfire of excruciatingly exact moral standards for the, quote, angels of the hearth, end quote, and a blossoming redefinition of the rights and responsibilities of women, Victorians especially seem to love stories about the female fiend. And this is a seemingly benevolent woman who is suddenly brought to murder, usually by poison, before she descends into a profligate life of debauchery, sin, and sex. The trigger always remains somehow tantalizingly vague. What could drive a sane woman to such lengths, if not some form of vile congenital madness? And seemingly ripped from the pages of a Victorian potboiler comes the real-life story of a middle-aged woman from a respectable family whose deep obsession with a married doctor drove her to attempt the poisoning of his wife and the tragic aftermath that left a young boy dead and countless others sick with strychnine poisoning. Today we're going to explore the chilling case of Christiana Edmonds, dubbed by the press as the Chocolate Cream Killer. Her crime sent shockwaves through the Victorian era and left the enduring question of what actually constitutes legal and moral insanity. Often when we talk about true crime cases, we look for patterns and early signs that must certainly reveal that our bad actor was indeed bad all along. In the case of Christiana, though, those signs of sociopathology that maybe seem really obvious to us today were not so obvious then. Mm. Christiana Edmonds was born in Margate, Kent, in October 1828 as the eldest child of William Edmonds, 
who was an esteemed architect known for designing the local Holy Trinity Church and Margate Lighthouse. Her mother, Anne Christiana Byrne, came from a distinguished family. She was the daughter of a Royal Marines captain, so a family of some renown. Although actual records from her youth are gone, Christiana was believed to have a fairly privileged upbringing. That is, privileged for a girl. (laughs) She attended a private finishing boarding school where she was likely taught many of the skills the Victorian ladies of leisure were expected to enjoy, such as painting, music, and embroidery. And while she was never intended to become as educated as her brother, Christiana would have been expected to uphold all the feminine virtues of her time, modesty, self-control, and temperance. The end of her education correlated with a monumental upheaval in her family life when, in 1843, her father became very mentally ill, delusional, and violent. He was confined to a genteel asylum care, where he remained until a swift death. Christiana was 19, and her future was now under the shadow of the specter of hereditary madness. Perhaps to make a clean break from their past, the family moved from Margate to Canterbury with respectable but reduced circumstances. All the Edmonds children had to look towards a different future than perhaps they anticipated. Christiana's brother ended up moving to South Africa to make his fortune. Her sister Louisa became a governess, and her sister Mary married out of the family. On the other hand, Christiana stayed with their mother and started to display signs of agitated health so much so that she was sent to a physician in London in 1853 and diagnosed with hysteria, that very famous Victorian (laughs) malady that women suffered from. Unfortunately, tragedy was still coming for the Edmonds family. Not long after Christiana's diagnosis, her youngest brother, Arthur, was diagnosed with epilepsy, then considered a form of imbecility. He was institutionalized in 1860, and he died in 1866. And at age 36, Christiana's sister Louisa collapsed outside her home and died suddenly in 1867. Perhaps in another attempt to start anew, Christiana and her mother Anne moved again, this time to Brighton, a bucolic seaside town that gained extreme popularity for its healthy air and mild sea bathing. The Edmonds now settled into rooms at Marlborough Place, owned by George and Alice Over, who introduced Christiana and Anne to Dr. Charles Beard. Christiana was first his patient. He apparently treated her for neuralgia, but those medical records are long gone, and it's also unknown whether he understood that she had previously been diagnosed with hysteria. At some point, this professional relationship bloomed into a friendship, with Christiana copying anatomical drawings to display in his office, and the two started exchanging letters. Now, the exact nature of the relationship remains contentious, but the general consensus is that Christiana had romantic feelings that the doctor did not return, although he very likely enjoyed the attention. Once started, though, Christiana's devotion grew into unwavering obsession. Her landlords, the Overs, said that their ladylike, quiet, and kind tenant instead developed a wildness in her look in an excited and edgy manner. Now, the Edmonds women ended up moving to new rooms, but nothing seemingly could stop the outpouring of Christiana's feelings and thoughts about Dr. Beard. She also befriended his wife, Emily, and frequently visited her at the Beard home, Emily apparently unaware of Christiana's obsession with her husband. As Kay Joan relates this event in the case of the chocolate cream killer, Christiana visited Emily Beard late in the evening in September 1870 while Dr. Beard was away in London. 
In the drawing room, Christiana produced a bag of chocolates from Maynard's, a local confectioner, and attempted to hand-feed her a chocolate cream. Overwhelmed by metallic, bitter taste, Emily spit out the chocolate. And although she was sick after the incident, Emily Beard didn't exactly consider it to be foul play. But her husband believed otherwise and advised his wife to steer clear of Christiana. Beard confronted Christiana, who protested that she was innocent and that she herself fell ill from the chocolates. Instead of gaining his sympathy, Christiana lost Beard's regard altogether, and this rejection sent her into a deadly tailspin. In 1871, Edmonds initiated a very broad poisoning scheme meant to diffuse Beard's suspicions of her, and ultimately I think she thought she'd regain his regard and his affection. Right. Three times she obtained strychnine from a nearby chemist, Isaac Garrett, under the guise of needing it to eliminate stray cats. I already hate her. Instead, she laced chocolate creams from Maynard's confectionery. She then either hired young boys to return the chocolates to the store in hopes that they would be resold, or she herself gave parcels of tainted chocolates to unsuspecting people, or left them in places where they could be taken. She made complaints to Maynard directly that he'd sold her chocolates that made her ill. One crime blog likened her actions during this time to setting off fireworks in a neighborhood just to see the reaction. She was trying really hard to get people to take these chocolates, to eat them, and to get sick. The poisoning continued to escalate until June 1871, when four-year-old Sidney Albert Barker, vacationing with his family, succumbed to death after consuming chocolates from Maynard's shop. The inquest into Sidney Albert's death determined, however, that although Sidney had died as a result of strychnine poisoning, the exact chain of events that led to his death were still largely unknown. Rather than cease her machinations, Christiana instead took the opportunity to put herself again into Dr. Beard's path. The following quote is from a letter she sent to him after the inquest, in which she both seems to highlight and obfuscate her connections to the poisonings. Quote, Caro mio, I have been so miserable since my last letter to you. I can't go on without ever speaking to you. What made me write so? I thought perhaps it would be better for both of us, but I have not strength of mind to bear it. We met La Sposa, his wife, the day after her return, and were glad to see her back again. La Madre, her mother, thought she looked very thin and careworn. I hope she will feel the good now from her change. You must have missed her. I didn't enter on the poisoning case on the street, but I called and told her I was obliged to appear at the inquest in a few days, and I hoped she would send you a paper and let you know. But she said no, she did not wish to unsettle you. However, dear, I mean you to know about this dreadful poisoning case, especially as I had to give evidence and I know how interested you would be in it, as you told me you would give anything to know what La Sposa swallowed. I sent you the analysis, and I have no means of knowing if it was sent you. Yes, through my analysis, the police found me out and cited me to appear. You can fancy what I felt such an array of gentlemen, and that clever Mr. Leatherby looking so ugly and so terribly frightened me more than anyone else, for if I gave wrong symptoms, of course he would have known." You fancy my feelings, standing there before the public looking very rosy and frightened as I was. When I saw the reporter's pens going and taking down all, I uttered Burns's line rushed to my memory. The chilled among them taking notes, and faith will print it. Her letter continues. My dear boy, do esteem me now. I'm sure you must. What a trial it was to go through that inquest. La Madre was angry I ever had the analysis, but you know I had it to clear myself in my dear friend's eyes. 
She always says nothing was meant by you. No, darling, you wanted an excuse for my being so slighted. I never think of it. It was all a mistake. I called on Lesposa and told her how I got on. She said my evidence was very nice. She didn't ask me to come, but perhaps she mustn't. Now there is no reason. La Madre says if you are at home, she is sure you would ask me just the same as ever. Come and see us, darling. You have time now. La Madre and I have been looking forward to your holiday to see you. She wants to know how you get on and how you like the North. Don't be biased by any relatives. Act as your kind heart tells you, and make a poor little thing happy, and fancy a long, long bacchio kiss from Dorothea. Why she used the pen name Dorothea, and that is, is actually kind of unknown, but it sort of points to a fact that she had these delusions about herself and her role in his life. Anyway, end quote. There's no indication that Dr. Beard ever visited Christiana or responded to this letter. Undaunted, she continued her poisonous campaign by dispatching parcels of poisoned foods, things like fruits, candies, and more, to prominent figures, including Emily Beard, who, along with two of her housemaids, once again fell violently ill. In a bid to deflect suspicion away from herself again, Christiana also sent parcels to herself, claiming to be a victim of the poisoner. But the wheels of justice were starting to turn at last. The suspicious Isaac Garrett, the chemist, grew wary of her frequent purchases of strychnine, and Dr. Beard decided that this second attempt to poison his wife was more damaging than a scandal. Christiana Edmonds was arrested, and what followed was a sensational trial that captivated the nation. During the trial, which commenced in January 1872, her own mother testified about the prevalent history of mental illness within her familial lineage, and Christiana vehemently denied her guilt, claiming insanity as her defense. But the evidence against her was damning, including incriminating letters and witnesses who testified to her increasingly erratic behavior. It took the jury just over an hour to deliberate and return the conviction of murder. Following her conviction, Christiana was sentenced to death by hanging, but her fate was clouded by public debate over her sanity. We're going to take a quick sponsor break, but when we return, Lay will provide an analysis of mental illness, crime, and chocolate. Spring is coming, and that means that there will soon be crops of fresh and tender vegetables to perk up our winter palates. If, like me, you find yourself craving some novelty, then Kim and I heartily recommend the delicious artisan oils and vinegars, salts and spices, chocolates and conservas, and gifts at Genesis Kitchen. Genesis Kitchen is committed to helping the foodie community find a wide variety of ethically and sustainably sourced food and pantry items. My favorite is the Barnacle Kelp Chili Crisp. And Kim won't stop talking about Teeny Tiny's organic curry spice blends. And if you're looking to share a little food love with someone special, there are a variety of gift sets that Genesis Kitchen has especially curated to whet the appetite. If you're local to the Flathead Valley, visit them at their Columbia Falls location. If not, they're just a click away at genesis-kitchen.com. This episode is sponsored by Genesis Kitchen. Use the code ASWEEAT25 to enjoy 25% off your first order. Promotion ends April 30th, 2024. Welcome back. Thanks, Kim. Now, unlike our episode on Marie Lafarge, there is little doubt about Christiana's guilt. The biggest question that most of us are left with is, why would a woman of her station 
poison innocent people. I mean, my goodness, she killed a four-year-old boy. And when you look at the lengths that she went to misdirect suspicion and the planning and complexity of the poisonings, it's easy to conclude that she was, as you mentioned at the top of the episode, a female fiend whose sentence should not have been overturned. Yes, rather than hanging for her crimes, Christiana spent her remaining 36 years in the Broadmoor Criminal Lunatic Asylum. But this story, like all stories, is multifaceted, and you can't look at Christiana's actions through the lens of a sound mind, because her mind was anything but. As you mentioned early on, Kim, this family was plagued with mental illness. Both sides of Christiana's family suffered from mental disorders. And when you look back at her life, we can see some events that may have contributed to Christiana losing grasp on reality. The first was when her father was institutionalized. Now, there was a huge stigma about institutionalization at the time, and it was widely believed that not only did a child inherit physical traits from their parents, but they also inherited an amalgamation of, quote, experiences, diseases, achievements, accidents, and transgressions, end quote. The sins of the father or the mother, in this case, essentially. And this belief was so rooted that it even infiltrated popular literature. An article in the Literary Gazette in 1827 read, quote, What has been advanced is sufficient to show that vital importance of inquiring into the state of every family as far as hereditary disposition is concerned. Parents and guardians should be informed that an alliance with a family where insanity has prevailed ought to be prohibited. End quote. Now, the Literary Gazette was the New Yorker of its time, and it had unparalleled influence. Now, imagine a girl groomed to become a wife. And we talked about the fact that she had gone to these schools to be groomed, right? She learned mm-hmm. about music and embroidery and how to be a good wife, essentially. This was her lot in life, to be a wife and run a household. Her only outlet, too. It's like this is the only outlet available to her as a woman. She's going to have no profession right? other than wifehood and motherhood. Exactly. There's zero out for her. And to have this jeopardized. Right. That's Completely. the thing that's, that's so, yeah, like her father's mental state, they had to move because she probably would never have been able to get married nope. if they had stayed in Margate. Right. There were no social calls. There were no balls. There were no coming out balls. There was no eligible suitors at her door. Instead, Mm -hmm. as you mentioned, there was the relocation to a town where her father's mental illness would not stain her reputation. But this move, as we have seen, did little to bolster Christiana's marital prospects. She became increasingly emotional and anxious and would burst into fits of hysteria and have difficulty breathing. These symptoms worsened to the point that she actually became paralyzed on one side of her body. Now, it's likely that Christiana received various treatments from herbal remedies to electrotherapy to cure her hysteria, which I want to note was always blamed on the uterus and its functions. The famous wandering uterus theory. The famous wandering uterus theory, menopause menstruation, all of these things. So, right, we have this young woman whose only purpose in life, according to social norms, is to be a mother and a wife, run a household, and she can fulfill none of these requirements 
through no fault of her own, and who has been poked and prodded and likely told that her issues stem from the fact that she isn't fulfilling her sole purpose in life. We've got this insidious cycle going on. I mean, of course it's going to mess with your mind. Yeah, not to mention you've lost a parent. Right. Not only have you physically lost the parent because he is now institutionalized, but you emotionally lose that parent, too, because he's become increasingly paranoid and delusional and violent. And suddenly he's ripped away and she's left to deal with the consequences of that. Right, right. And like you said, not only was she dealing with this, she was subjected to shaming and judgmental treatments. She'd lost her father, like we said, to insanity, a sister to suicide, and another brother who had died in an asylum. These events alone would have an impact on anyone. But it also points to a possible genetic predisposition to mental illness. Now, I want to distinguish between the Victorian belief about insanity and a predisposition to mental illness. The word insanity was a word that in Victorian times was used to really lump all sorts of mental illnesses together, from hysteria, from bacterial infections, like the late stages of syphilis, personality disorders, PMS, menstruation, epilepsy, into this one diagnosis. Mm -hmm. Now, we do know today that there is a predisposition to some mental disorders. It doesn't mean that every member of a family who has a history of mental illness will be affected, but there is a probability of it. The other thing is that a lot of these mental illnesses that were classified as insanity today would be treated with penicillin, would be treated with counseling, and could become overcome. But it did seem in the Edmonds family, as we saw, that this probability was realized by several members, sadly, who probably could have been helped. Now, I want to jump back to the trial, because as you mentioned, Kim, Christiana's defense attorney was set to use this insanity plea. In fact, he had Christiana's mental state evaluated by several preeminent medical professionals of the time, all of whom agreed that she was morally insane. Now, moral insanity was defined during this time as a morbid perversion of the natural feelings and would cause people to behave in irrational ways, including violence. It was assigned to the emotional state of a person and not to their intellect. Now, during her trial, the defense brought forward several character witnesses, including her mother and medical professionals, that presented evidence of Christiana's unsound state of mind in relation to moral insanity. And then Dr. Charles Lockhart Robertson, who had previously evaluated her state of mind and was convinced of her moral insanity, answered two questions that would give the jury information that would cause doubt in the insanity plea. He was asked by the prosecutor, had she any moral sense? Now, an aside, in Victorian England, morality was guided by religious teachings and thoughts and included the rejection of criminal behavior. Dr. Robertson's response was, to a certain degree, she had. When asked, do you mean that if she administered poison to another with intent to kill him, she would know she was doing wrong? His answer, 
I believe she would know that she was doing wrong if she committed an act. So with these two sentences, Robertson provided the proof, in air quotes, that the jury needed, despite all of the other testimonies that had been given. Now, as you mentioned, Kim, the jury took one hour to deliberate and returned a guilty verdict for murder, and her sentence was to be hanged by the neck until dead. At this point, Christiana pled the belly, which meant that she was admitting that she was pregnant. This was a common ploy to stay or delay an execution and evoke sympathy. She was taken from the court and further examined. A physical examination determined that she was not pregnant. But it was at this point that the extent of her diminished emotional capacity is laid bare. As she indicated that she believed Dr. Beard wanted his wife dead and that he would subsequently marry her, even after the verdict, clinging to this delusion that she would return home to a new life with Dr. Beard. Immediately after the verdict came broad concern about the actual condition of her mental state, which would ultimately lead to her verdict being commuted to confinement at Broadmoor Asylum. Now, I'm sure looking back, we can provide all sorts of armchair diagnosis for Christiana. But I do want to share a suggestion made by former Broadmoor psychiatrist Professor Tony Madden in 2013. After reviewing her case files, Madden felt that she may have suffered from narcissistic personality disorder, which fits what we saw. She needed to be the center of attention. She felt superior in many ways. She required no demanded adoration. I mean, she called herself Venus. Now, when their needs aren't met, people with NPD try to address perceived injustices, becoming more manipulative, their actions can be destructive or even homicidal, and they feel no remorse or empathy toward their victim. This totally sounds like our girl to me. You know, and I feel like this narcissism actually plays straight into the foods that Christiana chose to use to deliver the poison. We have talked so frequently about how sweets historically have been a luxury afforded only by royalty or the very, very, very wealthy. They were statements of status. Now, in Victorian England, we see sweets become more available to the middle classes because of the Industrial Revolution. But we also see this huge divide between the upper middle classes and the poverty-stricken in Victorian England. So the chocolates, although more available, still would have continued to be this icon of status. So if I send a box of chocolates, I'm proving to you that I can afford this luxury. I'm entitled to this luxury. And of course, if you receive a box of chocolates or exotic fruits, you're going to assume that they are from someone of import and not suspect anything. And there's this really interesting law. There was this really interesting law regulating the sale of arsenic that really speaks to this whole status station in Victorian England. The sale of arsenic was only allowed to well-known people, which meant it wasn't being sold to, quote, indigents, prostitutes, beggars, or visibly destitute people, end quote, because these were the only people that could possibly inflict any harm. You know, the dregs of society. <laughs> you know, I, I do think that her choice of chocolate as her medium of poisoning is proof in and of itself of her involvement, because mm -hmm. 
this is something that she did have access to. She had the means, she had the finances to not only procure the strychnine, she had to actually have a witness countersign against her request to kind of prove, but she falsified who she was to begin with, got a, a milliner down the street to kind of co-sign on her strychnine. Like she went through serious levels of deceit to get the strychnine. Right. But, you know, she had the means to both buy chocolate to pay boys to ferry chocolates poisoned and unpoisoned around. You know, there there was a lot of means that went into this. And and to me, that kind of counterproves the depth of her involvement and the depth of her deception. Because right. yeah. I was thinking, well, if I wanted to poison a rival, how would I do it if I were of a lower class or stature, I might be able to infiltrate the household in some mm. way to add poison to soup or to right. tea or to a cake. But the reality was, is that these were delivered as gifts or left in situations and places where they were so exotic and special that one would not hesitate to enjoy the treat, as was the case with right. the four-year-old Sydney, like in his family. Yeah, her choice of chocolate was really, just really devilish because you're expecting a sweet treat. Right. And yet what you're getting is poison and actually mm-hmm. a bitter, very bitter tasting poison at that. Strychnine poisoning is horrendous. Horrible. This is not the way to go. You no. you convulse. You, yeah, not fun. Not no, fun at all. No, it so. is probably one of the worst poisonings. Worse than arsenic. Because, oh, way worse than arsenic. Because yeah, essentially arsenic. you suffocate because your muscles have contracted and spasmed so often that they literally give out and your lungs stop. That poor young boy. That poor Sydney. little boy. May you rest in peace, young man. Young Sydney. Young person. Yeah. yeah. So. Are you ready for a little bit of an epilogue to this whole story? I'm ready. You've mentioned some of it, but we're going to continue on with what happened with the rest of Christiana's life. As you've said, starting in July of 1872, Christiana arrived at Bradmoor wearing a large amount of false hair, heavily rouged, and with false teeth. She was 43 years old at the time. Now, you might be wondering what happened with her obsession with Charles Beard. Christiana's obsessions actually transferred for at least for a short time from Dr. Charles Beard to Reverend Henry Cole, who was the chaplain of Lewes Prison. So sometime in 1874 and 1875, she turned her fixation towards the poor chaplain, and it was discovered that she had been sending letters to him through her one surviving sister. And given her efforts to conceal that correspondence from the staff at Broadmoor, It's likely that the letters were amorous and also demonstrated her need to be the center of other people's attention. The funny thing is that in reality, she would not have been prevented from writing to the chaplain (laughs) at all. There was something for her in the inherent drama of it being secret and forbidden that probably added a little spice, no, well, some pun intended, to the exchange. Dr. Orange, who was her consulting physician for a large amount of her time at Broadmoor, wrote that he found it in conformity with her state of mind to prefer mystery and concealment. Mm. That would fall in line with that narcissism, right? That manipulation. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So anytime that Christiana seemed to feel like she was not getting the attention she felt that she was due, she would incite some kind of small drama. Uh, She did get her surviving sister, Amy, to smuggle in all manners of false hair, makeup, 
clothing, even though she would have been permitted those items if she had just gone through regular channels. Again, this points to that need to conceal and do things secretly, but also to make herself larger than life. When her mother visited, she would weep pitifully and complain about her treatment. She wouldn't wear any of the false hair and makeup. And so she was (laughs) intentionally highlighting that she felt that she was suffering in her confinement. Mel, like all others committed to Broadmoor, Christiana was very closely observed. And this snippet of conversation between herself and a patient visitor was recorded in the infirmary near the end of Christiana's life. Quote, Edmonds said, how am I looking? Well, fairly well. Are my eyebrows all right? Yes. I think I'm improving. I hope I'll should be better in a fortnight. If so, I shall astonish them. I shall get up and dance. I was a Venus before and I shall be a Venus again. End quote. Christiana did die nine months later of senile debility on September 19th, 1907, at the age of 78. So to the bitter end, she was determined to be the Venus of Broadmoor. Mm. You may be wondering also what happened to Dr. Charles Beard. As for him, the man at the center of this case, and this is a quote from the case of the chocolate cream killer that we mentioned earlier. The events of the early 1870s would have a long-lasting impact. In 1886, he was admitted to St. Andrew's Asylum in Northamptonshire for suffering from mental illness for the last 15 years, a date which corresponds to Christiana's poisoning spree. According to his medical certificates, Beard believed himself to be the victim of a conspiracy brought on by a larger number of deaths after vaccinations administered some years earlier. Even Dr. Charles Beard himself did not escape the specter of sanity and insanity. And that, my friends, is the case of the chocolate cream killer. For more information about today's episode, check out our website at asweeat.com. Follow us on Instagram at asweeat. And please join our family recipes, traditions, and food lore community on Facebook. Have you ever been poisoned? And so you don't miss an episode, subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And if you don't mind putting that chocolate cream down to rate the podcast on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser or Spotify, we would be so appreciative. It really helps us meet new food enthusiasts like you. We also publish the As We Eat Journal on Substack. We would be honored if you would support us by becoming a subscriber. We take tasty side trips through vintage recipes, community cookbooks, discoveries, and travel stops, and so much more. We're sure you'll find a subscription level that suits you at asweeat.substack.com. You've been listening to the As We Eat podcast, part of our curiosity-driven project serving up how food connects, defines, sometimes inspires hysteria, by blending a bit of research with a dash of humor. And a whole lot of passion. Oh, a whole lot of passion. Ta-da.